If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine bucking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Happy first official day of spring. The first without restrictions in a long time. Well, what do we do now? <laughs> Here's Scott Thompson. Run like hell. That's what I do. All right. Isn't this the worst Elvis you've ever heard? It is Hamilton today, uh, playing the Elvi today because it was, uh, I'm looking up spring songs and this one just absolutely floored me. Uh, today being, uh, Will goes, didn't we do this yesterday? Wait a sec. You know, we brought in spring yesterday. Today is the first full day of spring for those who are keeping score, uh, at home. So we'll come back to the Rolling Stone top 200 singers of all time. Anything to take us off that is good for me. All right. So, uh, and the whole Elvi thing, and I don't, I don't waste too much time on this, but I don't know if I told you, but um, uh, I don't know. Have you seen the Elvis movie? Will hasn't, but um, y- you know, I remember Elvi from. Uh, I was like uh, a young kid when he uh, died in his bathroom, sort to speak, and uh, so fascinated to see this movie because, of course, it's from the take of the Colonel, Colonel Tom Parker, who uh, managed Elvis rather than the life of Elvis itself, and how he was really manipulated and ripped him off for everything, blah blah blah. So uh, anyway, I miss seeing the last. Uh, 20 minutes of the movie because I saw it on a flight. That's a whole other story. So I watched it last night, and as I'm watching it, it's just, you know, I thought, well, how are they going to end this? Because we all know how it ends. It's like the Titanic. The ship sinks. Elvis dies. Uh, how are they going to do this? And I thought it was very tastefully done, but I thought it very sad at the end because uh, they dress up the actor, I forget his name, something Butler, um, you know, and they, and they got the big Elvis, and he's doing the Righteous Brothers song, Unchained Melody, which is the, the last clip we have of him performing just weeks, a couple of weeks before his death. And uh, it's just a brutal piece of, of footage to see. And then they blended in uh, um, with the actors um, the original footage, but not that, something I had never seen before. So it was very, very moving and what have you. But uh, And then you go on to find out that, um, you know, a couple of years later that uh, Elvis Presley Enterprises uh, found out about the shenanigans going on with the colonel and he was taken to court, couldn't be charged because he was a, con- a citizen of no country, which is why Elvis never toured outside the United States because the colonel was worried that he... Not Elvis. He wouldn't get back in. So, uh, and then you look at this video for this cheesy song that we just played, and it just completely um, uh, capsulizes what the Colonel was to Elvis and what he kind of did to his uh, career. Boy, that was a long time uh, coming around to tell that story, wasn't it? All right. So, um, there you are. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. As I said, Hammerhead Trivia coming up a little later on in the show. Boy, what a change of, uh, of pace here watching the Prime Minister. Mr. Tap Dance around the Chinese interference uh, in Canadian, the last two Canadian elections. And uh, he said, we don't need a uh, we don't need a a public inquirer. I got my friend here, David Johnston, who's a great guy, but it's not independent if you get to pick the guy. 
Sorry. <laughs> uh, no matter, you pick Santa Claus, but if you picked him, no, the committee's got to pick him, right? So anyway, um, uh, he says that, that that's not needed. Then there's these other committees and such, but these committees are, you know, they can't get Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's uh, Chief of Staff, to testify. So it was just like wasting everybody's time, which is why the majority of Canadians want a public inquiry. And then lo and behold, Katie Telford announces today that she will testify. Now, I'm not sure what she's going to say. Just stand up there and say no comment, most likely. But the point is, is that it was the NDP that said minutes before the Liberals announced she would testify that they would support the conservative motion to have their own committee, opposition committee, if the Liberals don't stop delaying and interfering with the Committee on Election Interference. Uh, again, no wonder Canadians want a public inquiry. So it was the NDP doing that. Thank God for them for standing up for something. Finally, um, that all of this has happened and Katie Telford has agreed to testify. Now, when, where, we don't know any of those details. And again, at the end of the day, how do you know? <laughs> Who do we, I don't know if they're going to add anything of any substance to this. But can we just get to the public inquiry instead of wearing, wasting all these millions of dollars on stuff that's, uh, yeah, exactly. Throw the salt down on the floor. Uh, enough of the tap dancing. We've seen the colorful socks. Here's what Mark Holland, uh, the liberal, uh, well, he, Justin's out somewhere. Uh, Mark Holland's filling in. Here's what he had to say. As we've offered David Johnson, an, an independent, eminent Canadian, to look at this issue, what is their interest? It would appear to me, Mr. Speaker, that their interest is partisan in nature. It would appear you have lost the room and you're not understanding that people want a independent public inquiry, not one that you have chosen for them. And when you're doing your committees, you're delaying by not letting Katie Telford testify. So they're not working is really the reason. Here's what uh, Melissa Lansman, PC, had to say. The PM's chief of staff has appeared at parliamentary committees on numerous occasions to answer questions. She ran the campaign. She's campaign staff. What's the difference this time? What is the prime minister ha hiding? And finally, uh, the prime minister caught uh, between places in his, a, uh, this was his response to all of this to reporters. And I'm actually you know, pleased to contrast the approach that we've taken, which is uh, with terms of reference uh, for the rapporteur that's going to be coming out later today, people will see uh, that there is an expert process that will dig into this in a nonpartisan way, and people can contrast this with the kind of uh, political circus that uh, Mr. Polyev is trying to generate. Political circus that Pierre Polyevra is trying to start a political circus the political circus is you're telling everybody you don't need a public inquiry and that all these com uh, committees will suffice even uh the one with your friend involved david johnston you're telling us that all works and yet it's the ndp threatening you to go and take this to the house that's what gets you to get t katie telford on the stand so uh, again how can this possibly be independent if you're picking the players and you decide what happens which is why the NDP has pulled the plug on this charade and said either you get her up there and get this moving and stop filibustering or we're going to support the conservatives in this opposition. And lo and behold, blammo, we've got action and the chief of staff of the prime minister will testify. Now, what will she say? That waits to be seen. 
We've talked about this before, and it's coming. Uh, the proposed federal 6.2% excise tax on beer, spirits, and wine uh, set to take off April 1st. Uh, interesting article in the Hamilton Spectator today saying, Hamilton Craft Brewers say federal excise tax on beer will have minimal impact. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, let's find out more. Franco Terrazano with his Canadian Taxpayer Federation federal director get his side of the story and is with us now. Franco, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am. Thanks for having me on tonight. So we've had uh, we've had the conversation about the uh, the the tax that will go up with the rate of inflation coming up on April first on beer, spirits, and wine and such. Does this dire- how much does this directly affect the person who's walking in to buy a product? Well, hey Scott, can I first just say shout out to those breweries in your area who are doing everything they can to not increase prices on their customers? Hey. How about that? Like, that is awesome. Good for those small business owners who just understand the struggles that people are going through and saying, we are going to do our best to not raise prices when you come in for a pint. You know, they're really looking out for their community members, and I think we have to give them some kudos. Now, that being said, I got to be a bit of a rain cloud, Scott. You know know me. Um, Look, this year's beer tax hike, that 6% tax hike, that's going to cost about $45 million in additional taxes, okay? Now, every small business, including breweries, including the restaurant down the street, they're not unlimited pools of cash that can just fork over more money and more money and more money to the government. So something eventually will have to give, whether that means higher prices to the customer or whether that means a reduction in supply. But either way, Bad news for our small business community and bad news for customers one way or another. Uh, what about uh, the government saying we've already given lots of money in aid to the hospitality industry because obviously they've been asking for uh, this to be at least paused until uh, inflation comes down, which is still sitting at, uh, I believe, 5.2%. Yeah, you know, instead of taking money out of someone's left pocket and giving them some money back in the right pocket – How about we just stop taking more money from them year after year after year after year? Now, a 6% tax hike when people are struggling with to afford groceries, the ground beef, the jug of milk, worried about their mortgage payments through the roof, that's crazy. It's crazy, but hold on a second because that doesn't tell the whole story, right? This escalator tax on beer, on wine, on vodka, rum, and whiskey, that came in in 2017. Well, after April's tax hike, the total tax increase federally will be about 18% since 2017. So Hmm. 6% sounds bad enough, but when you add up the bill over time, it's even bigger than that. Uh, What about the larger breweries and such? Will they be passing this on to consumers? What about those that are in the restaurant industry and serving the stuff? You know, Scott, I just have to make the point again. You know, I am not... A small business owner, I don't know how those breweries individually are going to react to this tax. All I can say is that at the end of the day, these businesses are not unlimited pools of cash for the government to keep taking more of their money, right? Something has to give. They can't just continue to bear tax hike after tax hike after tax hike. So some of these, this cost will absolutely uh, make its way to the till in the form of higher prices. Um, remember, guys, like every time we go pick up a pint of beer right now, Half of the price is taxes. Fifty percent of the case of beer that you pick up at the gro- or sorry, at the gro- at the LCBO is taxes, right? So we already know that taxes are increasing the price uh, on beer, wine, and spirits, 
And there's no way that this tax hike won't at least have a little bit of an effect on the price that we pay every time we get a fine. And some have said it's like other supply chain issues. It's products that have gone up. That's largely responsible for any price hikes. But as you just stated, half the price of this stuff is tax. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in some provinces, get this, you're actually paying more in tax on that case of beer than what half of the American states are paying for the total price. So, you know, there is no arguing that there's supply chain issues. There's no arguing that there's other tax increases that are driving up the price, right? The carbon tax also going up April 1. That affects everything that gets delivered by truck. So there's no arguing that there's other factors here leading to higher inflation. But come on. I mean, I can't believe I have to say this out loud with my mouth. But the last <laughs> thing the government should be doing right now is raising taxes and, and, and raising taxes on, on beer, wine and spirits, no less. April Fools, it all happens. Franco Terrazano with his Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, right now, as we speak, uh, the premier, or sorry, the prime minister of China, sorry, the president of China and the president of uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, well, Putin, let's get to it. And uh, they're meeting. And this is the second day of those meetings. They're talking about and using phrases such as new world order and such. We certainly know that uh, Russia is supplying uh, China with lots of cheap energy. Uh, during this time when um, the rest of the world is turning its back on Russia. Where does that leave China, considering it is, uh, so they say, the world's factory? A lot of the stuff that we buy comes from there. There's a lot of, uh, of commerce going back and forth with China, certainly compared to Russia. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Doing very well. So considering, especially now that Putin has, uh, has got a warrant hanging over his head from the international court and such, uh, how does, how does, uh, China ride this fence? And, and at what point does it become economically, uh, just a poor idea? I think you've asked what is the most important geopolitical question facing everyone around the world today. Uh, let me just back up because that sounds so, you know, apocalyptic. I don't, don't mean it to sound apocalyptic, but it is certainly really, really big. It's very geopolitically, strategically big. In the 20th century, we were in a bipolar world. There were two, essentially two superpowers. One was the United States and the other was the USSR, which was essentially Russia, but there was the communist regime in, in Russia. And that dominated the uh, world for most of the 20th century. And there were two different worlds, two different economies. The so-called Soviet bloc, sometimes called the Warsaw Pact countries, had their own economies. They did not trade with the West at all. And so Russia, sorry, Soviet Union, as it was called then, literally divided up the Soviet bloc economies and said, okay, you know, Poland, you'll make cars or whatever it was that I can't remember what they made, you know, uh, Bulgaria, you'll make this part. So they did their whole, let's call it the economic supply chain and they divvied it up. So each country had certain specialties, almost like companies do in the capitalist world. And, and then the U S and the Western countries, and I'm talking Japan and Europe and Canada and Australia and so forth. We had our own system that we all know about. I don't think it's unfair to say that the Western model 
uh, proved to be superior, produced vastly higher standard of living, measured empirically, factually by average income per person per year. And that's OECD data. Um, and the Soviet Union, although initially it was growing very rapidly in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, I've studied the stats. It as as we moved into the 60s, you can actually see the 50s and 60s where their productivity is declining, their incomes are going down relative to the U.S. and the Western countries. Okay, it ultimately failed. The USSR failed and went out of business. And then we thought we're all now going to be one global world. At the same time, China, under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, who was a brilliant, brilliant leader of China, said in 1992-93, you know, we made a big mistake in the communist revolution in China. He says, we shut down our access to the West, our window to the West, which is Shanghai, and we decided to go it alone all by ourselves. And China throughout those years, people don't remember this, was incredibly poor. Yeah. They had mass starvation in China in the 50s and 60s, people dying from starvation, not enough to eat. And then the great transformation was in 93 when Deng Xiaoping said, we're going to open up to the West, we're going to trade with the West, we're going to learn from the West. And then China just took off and became the China that I've been teaching in for the last 20 years. Incredible tall high-rise buildings in Shanghai that make Toronto look kind of, you know, small. <laughs> and uh, to be blunt, to be honest. And uh, and that that model uh, was, was working. And now what's happened is a couple of things have happened. Russia, and I'm talking Putin, has harbored, and many Russians apparently have harbored deep, deep, deep resentments and anger of their the collapse of the Soviet Union. In fact, Putin said it was the greatest disaster of the 20th century. Across the uh, the ocean, uh, President Xi is, seems to be a throwback to Mao, Maoist times because he too resents what he perceives as the inferior status of the of China. And so they're both trying to create this, what they call the new world order, which I think is the old world order, a mm. bipolar world. One world of the Western countries led by the US, and that's US, Europe, Canada, uh, Japan, uh, and so forth. And then uh, Russia and China and other countries that will follow along. And that's where they're going. And I can't see it ultimately being more successful than the last time. In fact, I see it less successful because we're in this world where the one big difference between now and the 20th century was we're now in the digital world. We're now in the knowledge-based economy. We're in the world of artificial intelligence. We're not in the old world of bricks and mortar and having big, strong men in mines use pickaxes to dig iron ore or something out of the ground. And and so I think that both Xi and Putin, uh, because they're not, I just don't think that they really understand this, this world we're in. In this new world where the wealth being created is wealth being created by the mind, by the innovative mind that mm. creates computer chips. And so I don't see this ending well for them. But in the meantime, we're going, we're moving towards the reconstruction of a bipolar world, Western world versus the China-Russian a model uh, 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 on their side. So uh, we remember the day, and it wasn't that long ago, uh, last several years, uh, for the last few decades, China was a golden goose. If you're not in, you're out. Everybody wanted a piece of it. Is that not the case anymore? Um, and is it a strive towards more self-sufficiency of some sort? 
Right. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't overdo this and overstate this. I'm not trying to suggest that we're going to go back to the bipolar world where the, uh, the Soviet Union and its satellite countries essentially didn't trade with the West. I'm not suggesting we're going to go back to that, but I think it is fair to say that we're going to, that the relationship with China, specifically vis-a-vis the U.S., is going to, is moving, evolving towards a situ, uh, uh, a trading model where let's call it sophisticated products and services are increasingly not going to be traded with China because they're being banned by the U.S. I'm thinking computer chips. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have any trade or business. China is right. so, so large, both in terms of people and in terms of GDP, that we're going to continue to do business with them. But I think it's going to be uh, a more low-tech relationship, if I can use that phrase. We're going to continue to trade uh, food, and I'm not putting down that the you know food is a lot of technology in food today. Yeah. But it, it's not technologically sophisticated like a computer chip, mm-hmm. and it's not sensitive uh, to military industrial technologies. So we'll be trading fish. We'll be trading lumber. We'll be trading wheat, uh, uh, raw commodities that aren't sensitive, uh, you know, lumber products, that sort of thing. But I, I think that the more sophisticated stuff is we're going to see an increasing separation into these two uh, worlds, these two economy, world economies. And I think that China is going to be the detriment. Scott, I just want to throw a quick metric out there to sort of grab. I like to use sort of big picture numbers to illustrate. Quickly. I, I very quickly, I added up the GDP of the biggest countries, and I'm talking US, Europe, Canada, Australia, you know, these countries, uh, the Western countries, the market economy countries. They're about $65 trillion gross GDP. The world has a hundred trillion. So that means if the West is 65 trillion, the China, Russia, and, and their acolytes are 35 trillion. So they're one half of the Western uh, model, but more importantly, they're nowhere near as dynamic. They're nowhere near as technologically advanced, and in, they don't have the same commitment to R&D and innovation. So the Western countries are galloping forward into the future, artificial intelligence, robots, robotics, and so forth. And I think that uh, this is uh, Xi is going down the wrong road. He, he is not going down the road of his uh, predecessor, uh, Deng Xiaoping, in 93. And I think that, that China and Russia are not going to be on the winning side of their vision. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The election interference from the Chinese Communist Party continues to plague uh, the prime minister uh, at first saying no problem here, nothing to see and no need for a public inquiry because we have all these committees. Yet uh, there's lots of filibustering going on and the questions aren't being answered because the people uh, like the chief of staff are not testifying and all this sort of stuff. So uh, Pierre Polyevra quickly introduces a motion and says we're going to do our own opposition uh, committee with our majority if you guys don't uh, get the chief of staff to, to testify on who knew what and uh and ndp say yeah we're going to support that in, unless we get this thing moving all of a sudden boom it's announced that the chief of staff katie telford now will testify but will she get up there and say nothing similar to the filibustering let's bring in tim powers chairman suma strategies managing director abacus data and is with us now tim thanks for the time i hope you're well 
I'm well, Scott. Good to talk to you. How do you see this playing out? Are you surprised we are where we are? It looks like Jugmeet Singh uh, pulled the plug here and said, hey, let's get this moving. I'm certain if he didn't, he's going to frame it that way, Scott. You're, so you're going to be his PR agent with that one there. I mean, he wants to. Am I giving him play. too much credit? I don't know. I, I, who knows the full truth on that? It appeared it was heading heading that way. Look, I, I mean, you have to wonder why there isn't a bit of a mutiny in the Liberal caucus in some ways. They could have gotten here like three weeks ago, you know, and not put themselves through so much hell. I mean, they've seemed to do everything in their power to make this more difficult on themselves and put the country through this at the moment. It's not like Katie Telford is somebody who lacks experience and ability in before in performing before committee. She's done it before with the We Charity Committee. Why they didn't go there earlier, and as you rightly describe it, whether who's who 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 gets the credit for it or not, they've been dragged to this, kicking and screaming. It continues to create the impression, as you and I discussed last week, that they look like they're either wholly incompetent or had something to hide or both. And to your question, what will she say? I mean, I think it's going to be a fairly um, man, it will be a managed exchange. I don't know how much new she'll be able to add. The government probably hopes, and I'm giving you a long answer to your first question, but the government probably hopes with the announcement today of David Johnson's rule or guidelines as rapporteur that with an, a, a report supposedly coming on the 23rd of May, that a Telford appearance, a report coming on the 23rd of May, which may or may not include a recommendation for a public inquiry, may take some of the steam out of this. Not sure how that will if that will work or not. At the end of the day, will Katie Telford say when the Prime Minister knew about this or not? Because, again, this is over two elections here, not one, but two. So yeah, uh, will they get the answer to that? Will they get the answer to that question? Or is that is there too much security involved in that? I don't think there will be an easy answer to that question. Um, I think there will be a managed answer to that question, which could, you know, I, again, because where they don't want to go necessarily is to say, yeah, he knew. So the next question means, all right, well, what, why, why was he so, why was it so difficult for him to get, say something about that in the first place? Or if he knew, what did he do? You know, there are no good answers in any of this. So I'm sure they're trying to create the stagecraft for all of this now. Everybody loves David Johnston, but let's be honest, this is not making the grade because Trudeau picked him. And the fact that he said, we don't need a public inquirer, this is the prime minister, we don't need a public inquirer because we have all these other committees. And then they hijack the committees and filibuster and don't let the opposition get to what they need to do. I mean, my goodness, who's playing games here? It's This is a result of them not addressing those initial committees, which only emphasizes the need for more of a public inquiry. Am I wrong? Or more clarity. Yeah, you, you still have people, yeah. former people from the people who were formerly of the security establishment, like Ward Alcock, who used to be the head of CISA, saying he still doesn't think it's the best way. But the politics of this, I mean, yeah, that Trudeau keeps stepping on landmines of his own laying, right? 
Um, I, again, I don't know what's happening on your show. I was doing VOCM in Newfoundland last week, doing it again this week. Shameless plug for that. And I, I mean, the more people still seem to be focused on issues that matter, you know, in Hamilton and St. John's affordability and healthcare. Um, uh, and this isn't necessarily picking up in communities. And that's maybe why the, the liberals are as clumsy as they are with it all, but it's not going away. And of course, here on Friday, here being I am in Ottawa, is the um, the visit of President Biden. He's here Thursday and Friday. You have to imagine, Scott, that President Biden's going to get asked about this, and so is of course. Trudeau. Yeah. So all of the, you know, the normal pomp and circumstance and all of the lift a prime minister gets from uh, usually the visit of a foreign president is per- probably going to be taken over to some degree by this issue. You talked about when will the Liberals speak up. Uh, when does that happen? When do they realize he's more of a detriment than a bonus? Well, he's still probably their best asset, which if you're sitting on the bench, you kind of look in the mirror and say, why do I suck? Um, I don't know. I think they're probably hearing some stuff about it in caucus, but they may not be for the reason I said a few moments ago. You go to the provinces and communities, I keep hearing about health care and affordability. Um, but if this starts to become, you know, the issue that takes over health care and affordability in the public's mindset, then then maybe some of those conversations pick up in uh, with vigor in their caucus. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. All right. Lots of chatter in regard uh, federally in regard to uh, alleged interference by the Chinese Communist Party in the last two elections. Uh, committees going on. So the prime minister says a inquiry isn't needed. However, the committees are stalling due to filibustering and the Liberal Party not allowing certain people to testify, i.e. the chief of staff or the prime minister, Katie Telford. Uh, word has come out. Uh, NDP were going to support a conservative motion earlier today to uh, allow another inquiry, which would get into this, to go on. Uh, and all of a sudden, Mao, uh, the chief of staff, is is going to testify. Uh, obviously, it seems at this point that everything is favoring the liberals, but we have certainly heard of past reports where they have also interfered in the campaigns of conservatives. They're not looking to give uh, the liberals a majority government. They want to keep them at a minority status, but the, my, but, but the liberals in charge. How does that affect provincial politics? We've all, also had a member of provincial uh, politics named in this uh, in this investigation as well. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global News, and is with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Afternoon, Scott. Thank you for having me. So, what is the provincial connection in all of this, uh, Colin? Well, one of the provincial MPPs, Vincent Ka, who represents Don Valley North, uh, was ensnared in this uh, elections interfering network. Uh, according to Sam Cooper, the journalist uh, with Global News who first reported this, according to CSIS allegations, there were some concerns that Vincent Ka may have been part of this interference network, may have accepted up to $50,000 coming from the Toronto Chinese consulate, uh, intended for some kind of election interference. Now, Vincent Ka denies this strongly, saying this is uh, false allegations against him. He says it's quite racist allegations against him as well, because he comes from the Chinese community um, from mainland China. But what, what essentially happened was once this allegation came to light, the Ford government very quickly changed their tune. They went from initially defending Vincent Ka to then demoting him within the government, taking away his junior cabinet minister p- portfolio. And then eventually Vincent Ka 
resigned from the Progressive Conservative Caucus and is now sitting as an independent. So that's kind of, you know, all that has happened or transpired when it comes to Vincent Ka. And, and, and you know, uh, CSIS hasn't really made their allegations public. So Vincent Ka is now trying to clear his name. It's unclear whether he can do that without CSIS really coming out and saying, well, he did nothing wrong or he did do something wrong or ending up with some kind of charges uh, and an RCMP investigation. We don't know. There's a big question mark really hanging around uh, Vincent Cook. So uh, let me get this straight. I'm, I'm a little confused here, Colin, so walk me through this. Hold my hand. So both candidates, the conservatives and the liberals in that region, were implicated in this? Yes. Two candidates okay. who come from the exact same riding, that's Don right. Valley North, Wow. Uh, but but one of them is a federal liberal candidate. Another one right. is a provincial candidate uh, with the progressive right. conservatives. Um, and, and, and the only thing that seems to tie them together is, you know, these allegations that they may have ties to the to- uh, Toronto Chinese consulate and may have been beneficiaries either wittingly or unwittingly of, you know, some kind of funding that would have been that would have gone towards the election interference network. Now, now, here's the important thing. A lot of this is unknown. This is all coming from, you know, Canada's spy agency, CSIS. We don't know whether these are, you know, suspicions that they have, whether these are valid, uh, you know, investigations that they have. There have been no criminal charges that have been filed. So there is a lot that is still unknown here, which is why the federal uh, government is being pressed to come up with some kind of an inquiry so Canadians can get answers about whether their elections are free and fair. So uh, the conservative MPP has been asked to step aside or stand down from the party until his name is cleared. Is that the same for the MP? Are they still serving? The MP is currently still serving. The yeah. uh, you know prime minister's office and the and the liberals have decided that they are going to. Uh, you know, in, in effect, support that candidate. And you know, the prime minister indicated that the questions about you know whether or not a Chinese candidate particularly has something to do with elections interference is a racist and damaging to, um, you know, our democracy. I, I don't know if other people will necessarily agree with that. The opposition doesn't agree with that. But, but here's the latest, though, Scott, that's coming out of the Ontario side of things. So Global News has been asking the Ford government, what did you know about election interference? Do you know that CSIS has been sniffing around regarding Vincent Kerr? And the premier's office had indicated they had no knowledge of anything that had gone on. Well, now we found out today that back in the fall, after these stories first came to light, um, somebody in the premier's office actually reached out to CSIS and they said, what's going on here? Can you give us a briefing? They say Mm. CSIS never proactively gave the Ontario government any kind of indication that one of their MPPs was under this kind of suspicion. So they said CSIS agreed, gave them a briefing in the fall, but that briefing never really gave them any kind of substantive information for them to act upon. So the premier said today that CSIS was, quote, very secretive, wasn't very forthcoming and didn't quite, you know, fully answer all of their questions. So uh, it, Mm. it seems like the government is indicating they were kind of between a rock and a hard place. They were aware that CSIS has some kind of concerns, but CSIS may not have detailed those concerns fully. So they were kind of going, well, can we act upon something that we don't know has actually happened? And and that's why the premier's office kind of Mm. found themselves at a standstill in terms of what to do next. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Colin, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me, Scott. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. 
the Prime Minister is dealing with uh, a lot of issues in around uh, what he knew regarding election interference from China in the last two elections. Uh, and now it sounds like um, Katie Telford, or it's confirmed, Katie Telford, his chief of staff, will now uh, testify after pressure from the NDP and such uh, to make this happen. And all on the heels of that, a abacus poll looked at the feelings towards the prime minister and came away with a picture that uh, is perhaps less to do with policy. Uh, and there's an interesting article in the uh, Toronto Star and the Hamilton Spectator has reprinted it as well from Susan Delacourt. Why do so many men dislike Justin Trudeau? Never mind the prime minister's policies. A new poll suggests many male voters simply do not like him as a person, writes Susan Delacourt. Talk more about all of this. David Coletto Cullet- uh, is with us, CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data and with us now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks. Good to be here. Does this lead to that question? Is it time for the Liberal Party to try to find a new leader here? Well, I mean, I'm somebody who studies, you know, reputations for brands and, and individuals. And we do a lot on, as you said, on politics. And it is rare for somebody to change their opinion of you. So once they have usually, you know, actually, I shouldn't say that. You can go from having a positive opinion about somebody to having a negative one. But once you mm. don't like somebody, it's pretty hard to be convinced otherwise. And in the case of the prime minister, seven plus years in office, uh, almost a decade as liberal leader means that, you know, over time, your your armor gets dented, uh, the shine wears off. And what we identified in this, uh, this poll that we shared with the Toronto Star is that men in particular um, have have pretty negative feelings towards the prime minister. Just over one in three men say they really don't like Justin Trudeau compared to about one in four women. So walk down the street, randomly, you know, chat with with 100 men, and odds are 36 of them uh, are going to say tell you they really don't like the prime minister. And while they'll indicate they don't just, you know, they disagree with him on, on policy or direction, what we uncovered was, the, the feelings were, were much more visceral, much more emotional, right? People saw him as as corrupt, as a liar, as phony. Uh, half of men who really don't like him said he's he's feminine, and that that is not a uh, a compliment from their perspective. And and so yeah, so a short answer to your question is, I don't know if it's time for him to go, but the longer he's in office, the longer he's doing what he's doing. Uh, it seems to be the more people he's turning off. Uh, I must say, I'm not too surprised at the words they use to describe him. I'm surprised we haven't seen divisive. And I don't mean this to be, uh, you know, to take a shot at the prime minister. But to me, that sets all of this uh, at play, whether it's gender, whether it's climate change, whether it's vaccine. He seems to divide Canadians. And, you know, on the issue of gender, it was, you know, self-declaration that he was a feminist, which I'm not sure what that makes the rest of us. But um, he seemed I'm surprised divisive didn't show up. It, it, it does show up in, in some of the words people used to describe him. Um, you know, divisiveness, elitism, this idea, I think that some believe he he talks down to them. Um, yeah. You know, you can disagree. Uh, on on big issues or or small issues, but I think there's a subset of the population who really feels that he looks down on them, right? He's condescending. He um, he calls them out, um, you know. And and I, I think there's there's the other side of this, and there's lots of people who who like him because he does that, right? Because their value set uh, aligns strongly with his own. Um, 
But what that means is over time, he's created a large group of, of the public. Um, most of them may never have voted for him, uh, but they've, they've been motivated to now uh, challenge him, vote against him. Um, you know, some of them show up where I live in downtown Ottawa and occupy the city for, for a number of weeks, you know, mm. in protest to uh, him and some of the policies around the, the pandemic. So you're seeing manifestations of this anger um, in, 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 a, in a number of different places. And it's very much directed at, at him personally and not necessarily the Liberal Party or the Liberal government, but it's, it's Justin Trudeau that is the target of their, of their anger. At what point does that start to rub off on the party or does it? At, at what point does it become a detriment for them? Well, I think it has. I mean, um, you know, they, they barely won the last two federal elections and their vote has has dropped, you know, uh, just over yeah. just around a third of Canadians who voted voted liberal um, in the last two elections. I think the only the only, I guess, saving grace, if there is for the liberals, is that, you know, his Justin Trudeau's primary opponent right now uh, conservative leader Pierre Polyev um, <laughs> has the same effect on women that Justin Trudeau has towards yeah. men, right? And so you're actually seeing that the two primary choices to be prime minister are increasingly polarizing um, people. Uh, gender's one factor, but age, uh, do you live in an urban part of the country? Do you live in a uh, suburban or rural part? These these divides are, are growing deeper. And it's 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 in part because of the character that that people perceive that these both these men have. And so you know, yes, having a third of men say they really don't like Justin Trudeau doesn't help Justin Trudeau win, but he's up against uh, almost as polarizing a figure in yeah. Pierre Polyev, so it, it means he's still in the game. It means uh, in an environment that would otherwise be really challenging for an incumbent, um, you know, I wouldn't count the Liberals out whenever the next election comes yeah, from, from yeah. being able to win that one. Uh, yeah, it, it, there, <laughs> the conservatives may hand them another one. Uh, but And you have said earlier that it's the person, not the party. Um, so uh, would a new leader change those readings, do you think? I think it would it would reset uh, some of them. I think there's there's still a lot of baggage uh, that, that comes along with the Liberal Party because the brand and the, and the and of the party is so tied and intertwined with with that of, of Justin Trudeau. Um, but I think I think it's risky either way. Right. You, you bring in somebody who may not have all of the negative sentiment that Justin Trudeau has built up over years, but you also come with the risk of um, someone who's not known who's a blank slate. And that's just as risky because it could go negative pretty fast too. ask, you know, um, there's lots of federal uh, politicians who have come in and have completely bombed, even though they were hailed as being, you know, the next, the next great thing. I just think of Michael Ignatiev as the perfect example um, for the liberals. Um, So it's possible. I mean, in Ontario, like you don't have to go that far back in our history, Dalton McGuinty, when he stepped down, wasn't the most popular person in the province. Um, and Kathleen Wynne came in as a successor, yeah. a cabinet minister in his government, and then won a majority government in the next election. And mm, I think, point. again, in part because the opposition conservatives didn't do themselves any favors, but there are examples of somebody who could step away, a new person comes in, 
and that party still still find victory. You were saying, David, that, you know, when it comes to negativity, our minds are pretty set. Uh, positivity, that's, you know, it's harder to go from one to the other than than back. Um, uh, and minds are made up about the from the prime minister. Again, he's been there for a long period of time. That's typical with any politician that's been there that duration. Are our are, are minds set just as much about Pierre Polyevra or is not so much because he hasn't been in the light as long? Yeah, no, there's still lots of uh, people in the country who don't know him very well. Um, the number of people who say they don't know him at all, to have an opinion is dropping, you know, fairly steady uh, month to month. But there's still a lot of people who say, I've heard of him, but I don't really have a good impression of him. And there's lots yeah. of, because there's lots of people who don't pay that much attention to politics ever. And then there's those who may only pay attention when an election is approaching or when they're being asked to make a decision. So, you know, I wouldn't say Pierre Polyev, um, you know, has has reached the same kind of saturation or negative sentiment that Trudeau has. But when you look at the past conservative leaders who have been uh, leader as long as he has, he has more negatives than yeah. uh, Andrew Scheer two leaders ago or Aaron O'Toole, the, the previous leader. So, um, you know, but on the other hand, he's also excited conservatives in a way that neither of those two leaders did either. So, you know, it's uh, it's really hard to say. But but I think. If you watch Pierre Polyev, um, my objective, if I can have an objective view of anything these days, my objective view is he will rub people the wrong way and he'll rub other people um, the right way and, and get them really excited. And that's the kind of polarization that I think we're increasingly seeing in politics today. David Coletto with us, CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were chatting earlier on today that, uh, you know, obviously uh, major concerns over inflation, uh, interest rates, the price of uh, living, the cost of living, and specifically around gro- uh, groceries and, and so on and so forth. And the good news is the high interest rate rates are starting to kick in and lower the inflation rate. It cooled a little bit to 5.2% uh, for last month. However, we are still seeing a large rate of inflation uh, in the grocery stores uh, as they're sitting at about 10.6%. And uh, many, you know, we've heard lots of stories about CEOs being called onto the carpet and do this and do that and what have you. Um, but where do you go from here? Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And with us now, Sylvan, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Very good. I hope you're well uh, also. So good news on the inflation run, uh, inflation front generally at 5.2%, but still a problem with groceries. And again, we've known that the CEOs have been uh, the whipping post here. They've been getting it. Uh, what does this stat say to Canadians? How will these CEOs react? Well, I think it's uh, – I mean th- things are starting to ease, which is likely going to help. Uh, unlike other countries around the world, if you look at Europe, for example, uh, food inflation rates are still going up. I mean Germany is at 20 – it's at almost at 22 percent. Mm. It's it's incredible. So here we're at 9.7 percent. Um, the food inflation rate dropped 0.7 percent, which is the which is the largest drop since April of 2021. Uh, 
the gap between inflation and food inflation has remained the same uh, as January. So that's another good sign. So we are expecting things to continue to ease as we go through the spring into the summer. So as general inflation eases the price of other things, we're going to eventually see that in the grocery store. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is our expectation because when you look at the main categories, um, uh, fruit, vegetables, uh, grain products, all of these categories were impacted by what I would call the the perfect food inflation perfect uh, storm uh, that really started back uh, last year, about 12 months ago. Uh, so numbers uh, that came out today are, are really telling us that the uh, the food inflation storm is, is coming to an end. And so grain prices are under control. Uh, of course, the avian flu is still a, a factor impacting poultry prices and eggs. But overall, I think things are pretty good or at uh, least we've- better. Getting better. That's at least positive. Uh, Sylvan, we, we've talked before about competition and you know always need for more. Is that possible in the environment in Canada? Are there enough people to sustain more competition within this industry? It's needed. I think everyone knows that. Uh, even though margins have been uh, quite stable over the last uh, several years, um, we do know that margins are typically double of what they are in the U.S. So it's been cozy for for our grocers. So uh, more competition wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, I, I think it's important to recognize that that we don't have a discount grocer in Canada like Aldi and Little. And I think we would probably have a much more competitive landscape with uh, at least one or two more players. Uh, for which discounting is really the main factor here. Uh, can you repeat those numbers again, comparing us to the United States, that uh, there's more competition there, so they have it a bit better? Can you restate that? Yeah. So essentially, operational margins in Canada, if you look at the big three, Loblaw, Empire, Sobeys, and Metro, uh, their operational margins on average are about double of what they are in the U.S. So if you look at, say, Kroger and Albertsons, and so you can see that really there's uh, there's more cushion in Canada just because the, the market is not that competitive. So what does that say, Sylvan? There's still room for them to move on this. They could help then if their margins are twice as large as they are in the United States, no? Well, so when you look at their uh, financial statements, you clearly see that they're actually making money selling cosmetics, uh, pharmaceutical products, clothing, uh, same store sales are pretty indicative of that. So uh, food sales, for example, year to year are up about 8.4% which is actually below the food inflation rate. So they're trading water with with food. But when you look at cosmetics, when you look at, say, Shoppers, which is owned by Loblaw, uh, their sales are up almost 12%. So that's, that's where the bank is for most of these grocers. So the morality of selling food is very different than, than the morality of selling lipsticks. And so I think the question that a lot of people are asking, well, why, why aren't you using – Say yeah. shoppers at Lawboss to subsidize food, but that's not something. It's not. It's not. It's not that easy to do, yeah. really. Yeah, that's 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 a whole different business model. Uh, yeah, so uh, the news is here, Sylvan, is that you do see relief coming. 
I think so. Uh, I actually thought uh, today was uh, was a good news story, to be honest, coming from the CPI. I think there's, of course, we're we're not out of the woods yet, uh, and and frankly, if you're if if you think that food prices will drop anytime soon, you're delusional. <laughs> there's a there's a new there's a new baseline out there. I mean, just last week I was talking to two companies, and, and uh, for the next three years they're actually increasing wages by almost ten percent every single year for the next three years. Someone has to pay for that, and, and and so there are new packaging rules. The carbon tax is increasing on April first. All of these things are just making everything more expensive to do within the food space. So it would be unreasonable to think that food prices will drop. But the important thing is that the food inflation rate will continue to drop, which will make things more predictable, and we will have access to more deals as consumers. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. As always, Sylvain, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were chatting yesterday, uh, President Donald Trump, I guess, uh, in him being indicted is, um, is, is just, is imminent. It's, it's just a matter of time. Um, Trump posted on social media urging, uh, supporters to protest today. New York police were on high alert for potential protests from these supporters. Uh, and it doesn't look like at this point it has happened. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, who's in New York City and with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, good afternoon. So what has happened here today? Obviously, no arrest today. What's happened? Yeah, no arrest uh, today. And in fact, the grand jury, uh, we don't know whether or not they have already uh, voted to indict and has handed a sealed indictment over to the Manhattan District Attorney or if they are still yet to vote on an indictment, which could happen tomorrow when that grand jury sits again. Ultimately, uh, this is a game of waiting. We do not know if an indictment is going to come down. And essentially, it pours water on those comments from the former president on his social media site that his arrest was imminent. That was simply playing off of the media reports that this investigation was nearing its close. Are you surprised that New York City police were uh, ready for these protests if uh, we weren't sure it was going to happen? Well, I mean, look, they just wanted to ensure that they were going to be prepared if something were to happen. Look, there have been a couple of protesters out. They've been far outnumbered by the media. They've even been far outnumbered by the anti-Trump protesters. Uh, Still here in New York and back in Washington across from the U.S. Capitol, uh, there has been some protective fencing that has gone up. And for good reason. Look, Donald Trump's words can have consequences. We saw what took place uh, in the moments and hours leading up to January 6th, where the president put a call to action of sorts out to his base. And ultimately, uh, you know, his base took that to heat, uh, to heart rather, uh, and carried out an attack. So there is a legitimate concern here that something could happen. It's simply, again, a matter of waiting to ultimately see what the grand jury comes back with. And you were saying there's a possibility that they maybe skip this step to avoid the parade and any sort of shenanigans that might ensue. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, look, there, there could not be an indictment in general. And I think that that could in itself create problems, at least for uh, the district attorney. Even Democrats have come out to say, look, this is an unprecedented situation in trying to indict a former president. Uh, and if they choose to not do that, Uh, This could further politicize the judicial process, but it's also left some Democrats to say if indictments don't come forward, 
uh, it just goes to show that there are certain people who are above the law. So this is a difficult and tricky situation, not just for the DA, but for the jury who are really staring down a historic moment. What does this, uh, could this work in his favor, Reggie? Could this end up generating more revenue and more support for him? Sure, absolutely. Republican strategists have said that this potentially could turn Donald Trump into a sort of political martyr if he, in fact, is indicted and could work to lift his uh, his approval ratings, which are in and around the kind of high 30s, low 40s, still 18 months out from uh, an election. This really could work to solidify the base underneath him and at the same time make it more difficult uh, for rivals in the 2024 race to chew away at that base because they find themselves, A, trying to fight with somebody who's taking up the oxygen in this race, but B, trying to defend the former president uh, by actions that they see are politically motivated. So in either way, this potentially helps uh, Donald Trump, at least according to the strategists. Uh, and that was my next question. Where does it leave the the other candidates? But also in doing that, Reggie, that stalls the whole party as well, because anybody who wants to move forward from this, uh, they're jammed with, uh, with the Donald Trump issues again. So that makes it more difficult for any of those that do want to take the party in a different direction. Sure. And I think that it's not just New York that needs to be paid attention to. I mean, there are investigations that are ongoing in Georgia with the Fulton County District Attorney. There are ongoing federal investigations at the Justice Department with uh, a special counsel. So even if and when this New York investigation comes to a close, uh, Donald Trump's kind of political baggage is going to you know haunt this 2024 race for months to come again giving him the center spotlight making it harder for someone like nikki haley who's already in the race or mike pence or Ron DeSantis, who are widely expected to enter the race to try and get their own um spotlight when everybody is still focused on what's going to happen to donald trump is there a unifier within this party? Is there one candidate that stands out that could bring everyone together on this and perhaps even the country? Well, I mean, look, it, it, it's difficult. Uh, ultimately, you know, there have been some uh, political strategists that have said Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, should be the one who comes forward to say it's time to ignore Donald Trump. It is time to walk away from the, the Republican Party of the last few years and chart a new path forward. But because there is still so much uh, attention and strings uh, that go from, you know, the far right of the party back towards the president, uh, it makes it really hard to kind of ignore what is happening right now. So if there is a unifier, they haven't come forward yet. The problem is it's one thing to unify in the party. It's another to unify within the base. And still, when you have a 45 percentage number linked from the base back to Donald Trump, it's hard to unify when when that person uh, still controls or still has so much control. Where do you see this going by the end of the week, Reggie? Uh, it, it's anyone's guess. Look, the, the grand jury reconvenes tomorrow. So there's a real possibility that if an indictment is to come, it could come tomorrow, uh, considering that, you know, the day is basically done uh, uh, right now. So this could be a game of waiting. If the if the indictment does come down tomorrow, the question is, what happens next? Donald Trump will have to come back to New York. He will have to be arraigned. He will have to have his fingerprints taken and a mugshot taken. That might not happen until next week. So we are still awaiting whatever the indictment or not indictment is going to be, which is going to be the first of the dominoes to fall. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on this. Reggie in New York City following the Trump case. Reggie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
All right. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but coming up later on this week, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden will make a trip to Canada. Usually this is the first trip that the U.S. president makes when uh, elected, but not this time. COVID, what have you. I think we're like the 17th or 18th country uh, that he's visited. But anyway, next or this week, later on this week, he's coming up for a sleepover and uh, Justin Trudeau and he going to get together and chat about uh, what is going on. What is the agenda of that meeting? And uh, what can we expect moving forward? Let's bring in Eric uh, Edinger, a uh, sorry, uh, Aaron Edinger, assistant professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and is with us now. Aaron, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, too. I hope you same to you. So far, so good. Aaron, your thoughts on this visit? Uh, what's going to be uh, on top of mind, uh, considering that, that uh, the United States is always looking to Canada to increase security in some sense? How do you think uh, Joe Biden's going to react to the issues in and around election interference that the prime minister finds himself in uh, in the last couple of weeks or so? What, what do you think the president's reaction is going to be to that? Uh, the president's reaction is probably going to be uh, that Canada's got to fix its problems, right? That election interference is a significant issue, both in the United States and Canada. And more broadly, it, this is a matter that fits into Biden's kind of world politics worldview of, you know, a world of dem- democracies against authoritarianism. And in that kind of clash of big ideas, shoring up the security of your elections is front and center in the conflict. Uh, is is this going to be something that will distract from our prime minister's problems or will this be something that adds to it as he is um, questioned by perhaps the U.S. president on this and other issues? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of ironic that it can be both beneficial and uh, not beneficial to Trudeau and for Biden, for that matter. I mean, for Canada, uh, not being a problem in the eyes of the United States is really, really important. So for Trudeau to, you know, shore up Canada's election security, that's a great way of both doing the right thing for Canada and it helps look good in the eyes of the Americans. Now, the paradox here is that confronting election interference as problems with partisanship domestically, right? Trudeau has been under fire from opposition parties about the election interference matter for the past couple of weeks. So, you know, it's costly to address the matter at home, but profitable to address it with regards to the U.S.-Canada relationship. And that puts Trudeau in a bit of a bind. I do the right thing for the North American relationship. Uh, might come at the cost of, uh, you know, comfort in the domestic scene at home. Uh, will uh, will this uh, result in Biden perhaps having the same sort of questions or suspicions that the Canadian public do? Like, what's going on here? Why aren't you getting to the bottom of this? Why are we not having an inquiry? Obviously, one's not going to interfere in the other one's politics. But is the concern of the U.S. president the same as the concerns of the Canadian people? Well, I would imagine that Biden is concerned with the stability of the Canadian election system. You know, Biden, I can't imagine, has delved too deep into this, nor does he have, you know, too great a concern about whether or not, uh, you know, election interference swayed the results in 2019 Mm. and 2021. But, you know, it, it is beneficial to Biden to have a secure, stable partner up north. Now, we've got to remember that, you know, that Canada's role in the North American relationship is to be not a problem to the Americans. And if 
you know, it turns out that Canada is a soft spot for entry for international influence that is pernicious to the North American relationship, then the Americans might perk up their ears and take notice of Canada. But for now, I think Biden would be satisfied with knowing that the problem is being addressed, whether it's with a special rapporteur or a public inquiry or whatever. Uh, how tight are these two? Obviously, Barack Obama and the prime minister were tight. Is the was the former vice president now president as tight? Uh, I mean, there's a big age gap, so there's you know there's a there's a difference there. But if you go back to 2016, there's a there was a, a dinner that Joe in Ottawa where Joe Biden gave the keynote address and he just lavished mm-hmm. praise upon Canada, and that always goes over big up here up north. Now both the Trudeau and Joe Biden are the same kinds of politicians. They're very gregarious. They're very friendly. They probably get along very well. And you know this is one of those opportunities. We haven't really seen in a long, long time where a prime minister of Canada and a president of the United States actually get along nicely. Uh, obviously, there was lots of chatter over the last several decades around uh, fighter jets for Canada, F-35s and such. Now, obviously, the prime minister has made a commitment for them. Uh, how does that stabilize things on this uh, topic between the president and the prime minister? Well, that's going to make uh, the American president happy, regardless of who the president of the United States is, right? The U.S. will always insist that Canada spend more on its national defense. And right now, Canada is falling well short of its pledges to spend 2% of its GDP on the military. It's quite far down. It's about 1.3% right now. So Biden will be happy to know that Canada is getting moving on procuring this kind of big-ticket hardware. But it's not going to stop there, right? Biden is also going to insist that Canada uh, reinvest in things like NORAD, in the in the uh, the radar and surveillance systems of NORAD, more commitment to Ukraine, more you know military kit that is going to help Canada be a productive ally in this kind of global clash of authoritarianism versus democracy. Uh, we certainly know the story of Roxham Road and people coming in through the fence. There's been lots of debate about that. It, it, it sort of comes and goes, but it, it's obviously turned into a full-fledged industry now. There's obviously human trafficking uh, going on here. Um, and, and the Prime Minister will refer to the um, uh, Safe Third Country Agreement or whatever. It doesn't seem the U.S. has any interest in talking about that whatsoever. What will be What will be the issues around border security, do you think? Yeah, that one's kind of tricky because it's very difficult to actually arrive at a solution uh, that's going to work and that's going to satisfy everybody. I mean, right now, the you know there are more people crossing into Canada over the you know the, the northeast border, so it's a bigger problem for local communities in Ontario and Quebec where uh, uh, that are taking in uh, those uh, irregular crossers. Uh, but with regarding regards to the United States, you know. The concern is indeed about human smuggling and trafficking across the border, which is more of a you know a border policing issue. It might become a bigger matter in the United States because uh, Republicans are making a lot of noise about it right now. They are talking about border security in you know Quebec, Vermont, as part of the same conversation as you know Texas and Mexico, and conflating these two completely different sets of circumstances, uh, and that might that might motivate you know, political bases in ways that 
that will politicize the Quebec-Vermont border in ways that we haven't seen in the past. That being said, it certainly has come to our attention that these numbers are a lot greater than probably the average Canadian thinks, numbers of up to 40,000. I mean, there's a lot of people going through that hole in the fence. Is uh, Do you think that that will lead to something being done? The Prime Minister has said you close that one, you'll open the rest. Is that a good enough reason not to fix this? Yeah, I mean, in theory, it should lead to something being done. But, you know, if you have any better ideas than I do, I'd love to hear them. You can't can't just throw up a fence at the end of the cul-de-sac at Roxham Road because people are just going to move on down the line. That's the nature of, you know, a 9,000-kilometer-long border that's impossible to defend. And so there are no easy answers to any of this, certainly not to stem the tide of people coming north. I mean, just look at the U.S.-Mexico border. You can throw up border walls and spend billions of dollars patrolling the thing. People are still going to come. Aaron Ettinger with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, U.S. President Joe Biden coming up for a visit uh, later on this week. Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. So the big news today is uh, Katie Telford, the prime minister's chief of staff, will now testify. Uh, the prime minister is getting all kinds of heat regarding China in election interference in the last not one, but two elections. He said, we don't need a public inquiry because we've got all these other inquiries going on. However, during those inquiries, the liberals are stalling and filibustering and wasting all kinds of time and nodding, uh, not allowing the opposition to call the chief of staff, Katie Telford. Finally, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, got some kahunis and stood up and said, you know, enough of this. If you don't get this moving and get her up there to testify, I'm going to support the conservatives motion that they uh, presented yesterday. And we're going to have another committee on all of this. And what do you know? All of a sudden, Katie Telford says she's going to testify. Now, that being said, will she just stand up there and say, I don't know, or I can't answer that. It's security. Uh, Because really, the only question people want to know is, when did you find out about this? And did anybody bother to tell the prime minister ahead of the last two elections? Uh, So that's where we are now. Will we find out? Will she say anything? I don't know. But the prime minister is wondering why everyone wants a public inquiry when, in fact, The liberals are railroading any attempt to get to the bottom of this. We all love David Johnston. He's a beautiful governor general, but he's also handpicked by the prime minister. That doesn't make it neutral. So let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, your thoughts on now the chief of staff going to testify? Well, okay, so good. Um, good. I mean, uh, why, why we couldn't have got here a week ago without all the filibustering and everything else. But he- here's where this still becomes, Scott, where, where I still think, okay, uh, this is not an official public inquiry. No. And the thing I expect to hear repeatedly is, well, that is classified or that is stuff I can't reveal publicly or I can't talk about that or I think we're going to hear that over and over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, at the end of this, what are we going to have? And I mean, look, any political party and the prime minister is a political guy is going to take make some calculations. And when he figured when he sat there and realized, okay, I've got a choice here. 
surely he believes that there is a way for this to be done if there is stuff hidden that is going to be problematic, which, boy, with all the filibustering, everybody online, everyone everywhere is saying, wow, it must be really bad if they don't want her to testify. There's got to be something really secretive. Well, somehow there must be a way, I'm thinking now, me and my cynical at mind, there mm. must be a way that these answers can be given that the stuff, if it exists, isn't going to be able to make it out. I just, I, I've, the whole thing, Scott, like with so many other Canadians, I've just become so cynical to this because I just don't think that we're going to get anywhere. We're not going to get real answers. We're going to get more political obfuscation and non-answer answers and long running out the clock stuff. And she's not a politician, but she works in politics. The the one thing I've talked to with security uh, people, uh, you know, once you get into what's going on, what is the interference, how is it working, that's where it gets into top secret stuff. But to ask somebody when they knew about something and when they didn't know about something, that's got nothing to do with uh, top secret information. Agreed. That's not getting that's not getting into the the nuts and bolts of what is going on and who we have to protect. That's a simple question: Is did you like this has been going on for not one but two elections, yes. and it clearly works in the liberal favor so i mean you know at what point uh but scott if it was a if it was an inquiry an official inquiry it would be done by someone who is not picked by the liberals this way who is going to be overseeing these hearings the liberals so even if she is being hectored with questions to say answer it it's not a, a classified question the question you just asked if that question is not answered is the liberal person who is going to be overseeing this hearing going to be taking a hard stand and demanding, Miss Delford, answer the question? No, no. So th- this is why I am cynical about this. As, and you know, like, I, I know this sounds political. It, I would be equally as cynical if this was Pierre Polyev who was prime minister and doing the same thing, and his chief of staff was now going to be answering questions in a similar setup. I would be equally cynical that we would learn anything. It's a, it's, it's a made-up scenario that I just look at this and I go, I, I just, we may get one or two little nuggets of information, but we're not getting the full story. We're not going to get the full story. Will it matter? Uh, enough people have formed an opinion on this, and it doesn't look good for the prime minister. His numbers are falling. It's you know, there's a poll out today. It's not even nothing to do with his policy. It's just he's an arrogant, divisive man. Yeah, um, I I don't know the answer to that because there's also you know plenty of people who. Uh, dislike Pierre Polyev and say, I'll never vote for him. And we've seen in recent elections. I mean, Scott, honestly, I think it's his election. I think it's his election to lose. I it do really too. is. I and do if too. they shoot themselves in the foot again, people are going to go nuts. Well, oh, yes and no. Uh, it's not. Th- okay. To use a local example, this is not his election to lose like Hamilton Central was for Sarah Jemma, where you basically as an NDP, you could not lose that. This is much different. But if Pierre, uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, P- I, you know, when We've got Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau. I'm going to do that a hundred times. Yeah, um, when, <laughs> but yeah, but when when <laughs> we have a prime minister who has had the SNC Lavalin and the Aga Khan and blackface and all these things, and nothing has ever stuck. 
Why would we suddenly think that Chinese interference is going to be the thing that would stick? Because uh, less than 1% of us, 1% to 2% of us ever belong to a political party. We don't necessarily vote for one all the time. We go left, then we go right, then we go left, then we go right, then we go left, then we go right, and hopefully somehow try to end up in the center. So I don't think people are that much against one or for the other. It's at this point, once they get sick of who's in, they're going for the other person. The way that it becomes what you describe, where this is Polyev's election to lose no matter what, is if there is some kind of bombshell in this, that Trudeau had been told the Chinese were interfering and he basically said, play it down. How could Maybe. he not? How could he not well, be Scott? But we how don't... Could, it's two elections. It ceases. How could he not? And the fact that he's not even facing this, come on. So, so again, to that point, it does seem, and we'll wait and see what happens, it does seem like there are two alternatives here. One is that Katie Telfer was the gatekeeper and didn't tell the prime minister, in which case you have to say, how in the world does our prime minister not know what's going on? How could he Gerald not be Butts. told? Well, Gerald Butts? Yep. Gerald Butts? Yep. No. So either the prime minister was not told, in which case you have to say, why would his own people not tell him this kind of critical information? That means he is little more than a face. Or the other side is he did know, which is problematic as well. But again, that's assuming that what comes out is what you and I and I think a lot of other people are thinking, well, it must be this. Politics, though, politicians, Scott, this will be spun. This is going to be spun more than your your bedsheet when it comes out of the dryer. This is going to I be love twisted into a knot, and people are going to have to try and work their way through this. And if they are not engaged, if people are not making going to make the effort, they're just going to go, uh, I can't be bothered. It's too confusing and too much. I think they're just going to say, I don't give a damn who's in. Next, let's go to the next Maybe. one. I don't care. Maybe. Just let's vote for the next one. Could All be. right, that's it for us. Scott Radley coming up next, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote, and as he so often does, the trials and tribulations of Donald Trump continues like a terrible head cold that will simply just not go away. There are very few hardworking politicians left in this world that really put their nation and their people first before their personal goals. The good ones have silently faded away. 